Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. Hi, my name's Duncan Crabe. I'm the CEO and Managing Director of Boss Energy and the owner of the Honeymoon Uranium Mine in South Australia. Honeymoon is a pure play uranium mine with a brownfield restart asset. It previously produced and exported uranium to the global markets before being placed in care and maintenance uh, due to low uranium prices in 2014. Since that time, we've made significant technical enhancements. We've increased our jork resource. We've taken care of our permitting requirements and we've formed really close relationships with fuel buyers. So, uh, last week, we, we or sorry, yesterday actually, we released our enhanced feasibility study, which really now positions Honeymoon as one of the, the next projects to take advantage of this um, upswing in the global uranium markets. Welcome aboard, Duncan Crabe. How are you, sir? I'm very well, thanks, Matthew. Uh, thanks very much for having me on the show. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be here. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to have you aboard. Right, so what people need to know two things. One, I don't even think you know this, I'm a shareholder, so I'm going to try and not be biased, okay? There you go, that's number one. Number two, uh, it's the second time you've actually been on the uh, Crux platform because I think you joined Brands and I for, um, should, we, should we call it uh, educational drinks session? I'm going to go with yeah. that. <laughs> we were learning about... No. It was. We were learning about Australian wines and answering uranium questions, which sounds like a dangerous combination, but I think it worked out well. So there you go. Full disclosure. Full disclosure. Um, so look, we're going, we're going to talk about Boss Resource today. I'm, I'm actually delighted because we have a lot of requests to have you on board. And obviously with the announcement of the numbers yesterday, I'm excited to kind of get into some of that. Okay. Um, but first, we should talk about the markets at the moment. Last week was a funny old week. Not just uranium, but across the board. It was a funny week. I think uh, yeah, uranium equities had a soft, soft time, and largely with the, the a lot of speculation on the on the on the Chinese reactor. But uh, you know, within the industry, basically everyone marched on. Those within the sort of nuclear industry, and certainly those operating reactors, didn't blink an eyelid. Standard operating procedure. So. Uh, like all these stories, they can get sensationalised, but it did have a did have a softening of of the uranium equities. And we've seen a lot of generalist investors coming in from the tax space or just you know outside of uranium may have been you know precious metal guys coming into the uranium uh, equities markets. I think sort of begin end of last year, beginning of of, of this year. I mean, that, is that what you're seeing on your register? Is it is it hard, easy to work that out or not? It is. I think, I mean, it's an interesting one. So we did a pretty significant capital raise uh, towards the end of March. We raised 60 million Australian dollars. And by and large, it was it was mainly institutional uh, firms, international. Uh, many of the leading uh, in institutions in Australia sort of wet their feet in the stock, which was really pleasing to see. But Certainly in the last six months, we have seen significant growth in, in the retail investor um, and still seeing that. And often I see a lot of the price fluctuations occurring with, with that retail. Um, interesting to see too, um, you know, Paladin's just announced cleaning up of some of the smaller shareholders on their register. So I think I think general retail is having an influence on, on some of the equities. And with these new conversations that you're having, you're having to go in and talk about the macro because it's an unusual situation. You know, if if it was because it's dependent on price coming back, price on the contracts or spot that people look at. You know, if, if you were talking about a, a gold company saying, 
hey, we're gonna, it's gonna be fine because we just need gold to get to three and a half thousand dollars and then we're off and running. I mean, that's the kind of situation you're in. You have to explain why, in that case, gold will get to three, three and a half thousand, or in your case, why uranium is gonna get to 60 bucks. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's a real question. I mean, a lot of the questions now are, are sort of, when's BOSS going to, I mean, I might be jumping ahead here, but when's BOSS going to enter the market? Why aren't existing producers holding up for higher prices? But if you take a deeper dive on pricing, I, let's refer back to that, uh, I guess we call it the, you now that classical financial theory that um, the whole idea that the existing price reflects all available information, it takes into account demand, it takes into account supply, inventory, it tries to rationalise the market and put a price towards it. And that might work generally for stocks, but it doesn't necessarily work for commodities, particularly particularly energy. So right now we're in this operating cost regime, you know, there are pressures on sellers or primary producers such as ourselves. To, to lower costs and be more efficient with production. But, you know, that undersupply can quickly turn into what we call inducement pricing. And it's that where, you know, that strong demand cycle kicks in and having, if there's a delayed response, which is what we're going to face in uranium, prices can overshoot. They need to induce, have pricing to induce new mines to be developed. And that incentive price is, is you know, it's some way away from the existing current pricing. So. The industry can't turn around or flip that quickly. And um, Matt, I think, I mean, what a great example. Let's look at copper and iron ore in the past 12 months. I mean, they're commodities that have really flipped to that inducement pricing. And it can be sudden, it can be violent, um, but it's needed to encourage new mine development. So I think it's there's going to come a point in the not too distant future when we, we start um, uh, moving towards that pricing and, and we're seeing elements of it. So you're quite right. A lot of a lot of the uh, presentations or, or, or um, sort of uh, ex- explanations I give to investors or, or shareholders is trying to just explain that difference in, in pricing and where the spot price is, where term contracts are being entered into, and and how we actually see the market going forward. So you said earlier you you got access to, and I, I guess the raise recently to buy uh, physical pounds, what will have helped. You said you've got access to buyers and, you you know, for the utilities and, and I guess other others too. Why didn't they blink an eye last week? You know, why aren't they out trying to buy pounds? There's a lot of companies like yourself, like boss, we've seen, we saw a few people raise money to go and buy physical pounds. We've seen this, but you know, the spot uh, physical uranium trust come along as well. There's a there's a there's a new kind of group of people in, t- in town trying to force this price move. It seems but- they are they are, and and they're taking advantage of the low spot price, similar to what what we did. Uh, these generalist funds, Anchorage was most recently in the in the papers. Um, but certainly like the Sprott UPC initiative. Um, but I, I think, what are we seeing with fuel buyers? I, I would argue that, you know, we're, we're, is there a level of anxiousness kicking in? I think there is. I think there's this unknown, what's happening before us? What are we seeing? Um, I think we're already seeing utilities become more confident or, or sort of more interest, I should say, more interest in the spot market, in the midterm, in the long-term type market. You know, some firms have already been uh, uh, sort of testing the waters and trying to see what price we'll be happy entering into the market, what preparations are being made. So 
it, it's challenging. I, 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 where we sit and what we, we, what we see as a producer is that I think pricing and activity of the fuel bars is going to pick up in the third quarter and, and continue into the new year. I, I think it's, um, it's, it's not that far away, to be honest. It's kind of interesting to me, like, sort of looking back, you know, there's a lot of pounds being removed from the market because of yeah. COVID in terms of, you know, shutdowns. Um, and without that, I'm not quite sure, you know, when that kind of natural recovery of the share price, of the, share price, uh, of the spot price or, or buying price would have been. It, it, it's, it's been a very difficult market to read. And I think, you know, COVID's obviously accelerated things. But why, why is this market so tough to call why is it so tough to read why why can't we be better at understanding the numbers it's hard it's it's such an opaque market i mean it really is challenging while we've got visibility on spot price it's hard to understand we're not showing what the market related contracting is at the moment we're unable to see that and and it is challenging and i guess we you go back to then being reliant on some of the the larger uh, sort of industry groups or organisations that analytically assess the, the industry. Uh, we attended the World Nuclear Association in, in, in London back in 2019. And at that stage, I mean, very credible organisation was saying that demand outstripped supply, primary production was needed, an incentive price of 60 US per pound was required. And by 2020, sort of 2021, uh, 22 utilities would need to be coming out to enter into off-take agreements, and here we are. So, it it is it is a difficult, opaque market, and I, I can appreciate the sort of exasperation um, uh, um, sort of investors have. But but bear in mind, I mean, the reality is is that new mines are needed, and inventory levels have been decreasing. Um, we we believe the US or North America utilities perhaps have the lowest inventory levels of a few years, Europe perhaps a few more than that, and then the Chinese have a, a vaster stockpile. But um, what COVID has effectively done is it's brought that recovery curve forward. And I think, if anything, a lot of the forecasts that have been made, uh, Trade Tech, UXC, World Nuclear Association, if anything, those forecasts are now coming, we're, we're get edging closer and closer to when that eventual price move will happen. And let's face it, I mean, the spot price has been steadily trickling up over the last few months. I think this morning, the average spot was around 32.6 US per pound. Um, and that's before Yellowcake's gone out to buy its its, its inventory. And it's certainly before um, the Sprott UPC transaction takes place. It's it's kind of an interesting space because, let's say, with you know, with gold or iron ore or any of the kind of batteries, there's you've got more visibility because you know what the metal prices trade at. You you got, you got a sense and scale of it, and they're much bigger markets as well. But it seems like uranium has a lot of um, experts who are not yeah. necessarily able to use data to drive it. It's more a feeling or. Uh, you know, so it's a much more emotional response to the market. So Russians bringing on, bringing back online the world's largest uranium mine. Okay, uh, that's a very fair statement. Right. Then you had Taishan, uh, supposed problems there with one of their reactors. Again, not a lot of, not a lot of data. And this, this, this data kind of flows through from people who have not even worked in the industry, and they're having an opinion and they're shaping what is quite a small investment community. And you're sort of seeing these sort of big reactions to each of these quite singular events, which I don't think you'd necessarily see in other commodities. It's, it's kind of a difficult place to operate, isn't it? 
It is a difficult place to operate. I mean, partly why we, uh, we're often, um, we, we're like that. I mean, we're gauging what's the market doing and we're gauging that by the level of interest that utilities have. And there has been an increased amount of interest in Honeymoon and Boss in the past six months and, and it's happening more frequently. So, I mean, it was only, it was quite recently, I was phoned out of the blue by a fuel, out of the blue by a fuel buyer um, requesting on what stage are we at with our feasibility study? When will we be coming into production? I, I've, I've experienced that for a number of years where fuel buyers contacted me. So if there are those sorts of soft feelings and using your sort of intel in the marketplace, partly why we enter into requests for proposals or the tendering process. It's to get, we know that we're pitching higher than existing producers, but we're getting a feel for um, where we sit in, in that cycle and, and how close are we to being awarded a contract. And I, I actually think that works too for the fuel buyers because they're also gauging at which price will Honeymoon come on as compared to other near-term producers and, and getting a feel for where is that next wave of production coming from and at, at which prices will those producers be satisfied with. So, yeah, it's it's a funny one sort of feeling, uh, a company sort of feeling each other out as to where the pricing points are and price discovery is. Yeah, and I, th- I think and the reaction in the market seems to be we're seeing sort of you know higher highs and higher lows, and that that that, that range seems to be moving the right right way. So the, the sentiment seems to be heading the right way, even with sort of generalists coming in who may not necessarily understand everything, but they're the message out there is it's it's moving. Just don't know how quickly I, as usual. Well, I, I think so. I've I been really pleased, for example, by the the recent Sprott UPC transaction and and what that could entail. And I think that's going to be very positive for the market. I mean, it, it effectively it's bringing more demand into the near term and increasing liquidity on the spot market. Um, I think too that you know the the potentially under that the ATM arrangement that they have, that they've got the ability to raise significant amounts of capital to buy to buy material on the spot market. And that in itself should help help stabilise prices at the moment. We're aware the spot market's already thinning, um, but it, it could actually start pressuring the, the price upwards. So, I mean, again, going back to Honeymoon, our, our my role and how I foresaw it when I first joined the company was was to, to get an asset ready to produce and be really at the start of, you know, put ourselves in the best pole position for the start of the new cycle, ready to seize upon, a, you know, an increase in, in the commodity price. Well, you, you also tried to jumpstart it. You raised 60 million bucks and bought some physical uranium. I mean, why did you choose to do that? Oh, there are a number of reasons for that. But primarily the, 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 the real reason was, how do we put ourselves almost on an equal footing as an existing producer? And what existing producers have is the luxury of being able to feed into physical contracts. So it, what, when, when we enter into contracts or that, that initial um, stage of negotiation as we've been doing, uh, the question is, okay, how quickly can you commission the mine or restart honeymoon? What's your ramp up period? What happens if there's slippage in those few years? How are you going to safeguard our contract and, and meet the contractual requirements or, or deliver? As, you, as promised. And, and having this physical inventory on hand means that you can, if there is a slippage, you can feed it in to, to, to the contract. And that in itself has given utilities a tremendous amount of confidence. And we've had, I think there's about eight utilities now, eight or nine that have actually reached out and said, right, that's it. It's the final, final bit that we needed to know. I mean, we're not there on pricing, but we're certainly there on, on the confidence within Honeymoon. 
Um, so, so for us, it was really how can use it. I think it works for a company like us that that near start development. How can we best position the company? And all the meanwhile, um, we're we're long uranium. So as this spot price is tickling up, our, that value of the stockpile is going up. So, yeah, we feel it was a it was a good move, and it's certainly being endorsed by industry. Yeah, I, I mean, I was surprised by the quantum. I mean, that was a big chunk of change that you, you went for, but you filled it. Um, and I guess the second, the, the, the question I wanted to ask you, because we've not spoken about it, is um, was it partially to allow you to have earlier conversations with utility buyers in terms of, you know, contracting? Because, you know, there's a date at which you can get into production, 12 months from FID, right? That's what you're saying. Low capex, all, all lovely stuff that I'm sure utilities will want to hear as long as they believe in your, your ability to actually, you know, deliver, um, you know, the grade, the consistency and all of that kind of good stuff. But does this, do these pounds that you bought in the market say, well, actually, let's start the contract on the assumption earlier, on this on the assumption that we, we can fill it because we've got a large inventory sitting here and we'll just we'll feed that in as a precursor to our own production. I mean, is that part of it? Oh, it is part of it. I think I think the conversations are going on and they have been going on with utilities for some time. And and there are, I'd say, um, you know, where it's an open book and it's an open market, we'll deal with whomever, but there's some utilities we've been talking to for a longer period of time. They're fuel buyers who we've known for, for decades uh, and good closing work, good close working relationships with. So it wasn't necessarily to expedite the conversations with utilities. It was more so um, giving them the reassurance and the confidence that once we say we're ready to go and we're ready, we're going to raise the capital um, to, to for our capex to come to purchase the iron exchange sort of uh, uh, new, new NIM6 columns and refurbish the existing plant, that at that point of entering into contracts, that they've got the confidence that we are going to deliver into them. And therefore, the negotiation of terms assists, but it also allows them, if we are in competition with another, let's call it another near-term developer that's yet to build a mine that doesn't have physical inventory, just helps us be that one step ahead. And it, that first mover advantage is, is what we're aiming for to, okay. to retain that. Okay, so I'm, I'm just interested in the relationship because I want to get onto you in a minute, which um, when you when you bought those pounds in the market, I mean, mm-hmm. was that easy? I mean, how many phone calls was that? You know, how many, how many transactions was that? Yeah, sure. Was it easy? Uh, I think we're, we're blessed to, to Sashi Davies works. Um, I've had the pleasure of working with Sashi for the past decade. She, she's one of the world's top, top uranium traders. She's been in the industry for, I think this will probably be the fourth cycle. So very, very experienced, uh, very well known to fuel buyers. And the, the difference what we did as compared to others who have been purchasing physical uranium is we actually, prior to raising the, the funds, locked those pounds in. So really the pounds were locked in on, a, on, a, on an agreement subject to the raising of the capital. So we, we locked in the price, we locked in the quantum, and then we raised the capital. And we had a very tight time frame to do that of one week. So it was pleasing to raise that capital within well, less than 24 hours, really. Um, but was it easy to do? I wouldn't say it was easy. It's certainly easier than it is now um, in the current market because that spot price, that spot market's thinning. But the, we bought it from two 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 traders or suppliers, so um, that we limited it to that 
level. So we, did you buy it at spot or did you have to pay a slight premium for that? Because it's, you know, it's a lot of pounds. It's a lot of pounds. No, we purchased it at, at the spot price, the prevailing okay. spot price, which was, I think it was 30, 30.15 US per pound. So now you play the arbitrage game on, on, on that and whatever you eventually well, sell at that, right? Yeah, yeah, it's one way to look at it. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but I think I mean we've been in the industry. I think you're the, the where we stand. I mean, let's face it. I've, I've been involved commissioning a, a big mine, uh, the Husab mine in Namibia. Um, Wyatt Buck's been involved commissioning mines, and and we've got that experience. And and Bryn Jones too. And and what it's not commissioning a mine is a very very difficult process and a very risky process and um, I think that some of the sort of premium restart projects have in their in their in their sort of market capitalization is the fact that that element of risk building the mine and making sure it works has been largely take absolved so so it was really we're, we're looking at it what's the what's the best way to position ourselves what's the best way to transition into this new market what's the best way to to have that first mover advantage and, and what's the best way to get the best contracts and and that was that was the decision that was made okay. at, at a board level. Okay, well let's introduce people to you again because I think there's a lot of journalists people coming into the Uranium space and people who may not know your background. So X Husab F D at the time you're looking around and going, right, time to time to get a, a new role. Um, you look at boss at that time in the market. At that time. Right? That's a yeah. difficult time. So you're thinking, right, I can, yeah. I, can, I can look at a whole bunch of different jobs here, but this is the one for me. Why? Uh, well, it was a really interesting time. I mean, that was towards the end of 2016 in Namibia. In fact, I, I can remember having a coffee with Brandon in Swakopmund at the time, Munro, and, and where do we go to from here? It was, a, it, was a, it, was a, it was a, it was an exciting time and the market was still in the doldrums. So um, the, the opportunity came along from, from Boss Energy and, and the, the board reached out and said, here's, here's an opportunity. Why don't you've earned your stripes with Honeymoon? You've just about, you're in the process of commissioning that mine. Why don't you come back to Australia and take one on for yourself? And, and we, we, we sort of, I, I, took, I took that away and I did a lot of research on Uranium One, who was the, the, the previous sort of operators of the Honeymoon asset. And, and looked at how they operated, and and that's and I thought, well, there is an opportunity here, and that's what grabbed me in my guts and thought, I've always believed in technical advancements. The opportunity to have a restart project gives you that uh, that benefit of looking back and how do we capitalise on their previous operating successes? What can we do that's better? And and it's in a stable environment of Australia, so that that's what really really grabbed me and. I mean, it was it, it was sort of a few months later, um, beginning in two, 2017 in January, I returned back to Australia and, you know, found myself driving up the dusty road to uh, to the mine site just outside of Broken Hill in South Australia. So, um, and since that time, it's been really reassuring to sort of gravitate and attract some of the best industry talent and 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 consult some of the global experts to. To advance this project, such as where we are today, that that we've got a, a, an asset ready to be restarted and and move into this new new cycle. Okay, and okay, so people perhaps not so aware of it may have heard things like Australia is not very pro uranium or nuclear. So did that affect your thinking? We're not yet there on nuclear power, um, and I think that's probably some years away. I, I feel that 
we really need both political, main political parties in Australia to, to come to that uh, joint agreement that nuclear power is the way to go. Um, certainly what we are seeing in Australia is a lot more um, politicians talking about it and supporting that project and how else do we get to a carbon, carbon-free emission type society? I mean, while we can all be renewables, nuclear's got a part to play in that energy mix. But I, I, I knew that at the time, but I, I wasn't so concerned about nuclear power as a, as a source of energy generation in Australia. What I look for is where's a geopolitically safe operation and country in which to operate from? And when you look at Australia and its seven states, South Australia is the premier uranium jurisdiction within Australia. The only uranium mines that operate in Australia are in South Australia. You've got Olympic Dam, where uranium's a byproduct. You've then got the Beverly Mine, which, which is 260 kilometres to the west of Honeymoon, um, that, that also operates. So we're the third um, that's, that's about to come into production. So... The, the South Australia is well supported by by, by the political parties in in, in um, South Australia, and we've got full state support. We've also got full federal government support. Um, in fact, the South Australian government uh, has is contributing to some of the geo, geophysical activities, exploration activities in which we're conducting. So, yeah, they they support that state supports uranium mining, and. We're going to talk about the EFS in the moment, okay? And arts feasibility study in a second. And you're going to tell us a little bit. But when, when he tells us about what, what exactly, um, you know, did you walk into with, with Honeymoon? What, what was there? I know it's a, I know it's a restart, um, but what, what did you look at and go, do you know what, this, this, is, this is going to be okay? Uh, I sort of, I mean, sure, the geopolitical side, but I, when I'd assess any project, any uranium project, I mean, let's look at the stage of development. How quickly can that project get into production? Uh, we know that greenfield exploration type projects can take up to eight to 10 years until they start producing. Um, so, so how close is it to take advantage of this next cycle? We look at the permitting aspect and, and the, the, the benefit of Honeymoon is that it is fully permitted. And by that, it's got an export permit for 3.3 million pounds. Um, and to obtain an export permit in Australia means that all your other permits are in good order. Uh, our native title agreements are in place. Does it have a good chalk resource? And we, we have a great chalk resource, 72 million pounds. Um, so, so you, and then what stage of the, of the, of the, of the project is it? I mean, $170 million worth of sunk capital back in 2012, 2013 to actually build the mine. So, uh, we weigh up all those factors, and and that's what that's what initially grabbed me. Um, just knowing that you've got a you've got a lot of those foundation aspects in in good order. It then was a question for us on, okay, how are we going to increase the production profile? How can you lower your costs to sort of cut your cloth accordingly and and be a real contender in this next uranium cycle? Okay, and so who's this, who's the team supporting you around this? You know part of that decision-making process. You mentioned Bryn already, but maybe talk about him and who else is on this team that we should be aware of. Yeah, I mean, let's, okay, so take it to Bryn. I mean, fantastic um, colleague to have. Uh, Bryn and I have worked together on Honeymoon. First, he was in first in a consulting capacity back in 2017 when we did our field leach trial and he helped consult on that basis. And, you know, it's been wonderful working with him on the board. He he basically had his his first ten years of the of his career in uranium with the 
the Beverly mine, that mine just 260 kilometres to our west. And Beverly uses in situ recovery and it uses iron exchange. So he sort of cut his teeth in exactly what we're doing at, at Honeymoon. Um, from there, he worked with Uranium Equities um, and some of the top guys in the industry. And more recently, he was the COO of Laramide Resources. So Bryn's, Bryn's a fantastic chap to work with and he's based in Adelaide in South Australia. Um, so really good act, good, good, good guy on the team. Wyatt Bucks, the most recent director who's joined, joined the team. Wyatt had his, I think, first 15 years with Cameco. He ended up being the general manager for MacArthur River, uh, Cameco's primary asset, um, and was then headhunted by Paladin to, to see its Langer Heinrich mine, its flagship mine from commissioning to nameplate production, where he moved to Namibia for five years. And after that, sort of relocated back to the Perth headquarters um, where he oversaw the, Pallet, uh, the Langer Heinrich and Kalakira operation for a few years. Um, post Fukushima and the dive in prices, he then joined First Quantum uh, as their director of operations and, and project execution. So Wyatt's very stable hands, been there, done that, just another great guy to work with. Um, we have uh, Peter O'Connor, as the chair, Peter was the senior non-exec of, of Northern Star, which is Australia's primary uh, gold, gold producer. Um, he was involved with the company from a 300 million market capitalization to when he stepped off quite recently at, at 10 billion and, and very, very experienced with global markets. So Dudley Kingsnorth, experienced metallurgist and uh, Sashi, who I've mentioned, so, so really a strong, strong executive team on the operating side. We've, we've started developing our own owners team. And yeah, I mean, it's the team to take you forward. Trevor Robinson, very skilled engineer. I actually met Trevor in, in, uh, when I was on HUSAB. He was installing some of the columns there. Um, very skilled with iron exchange. So um, terrific chap to work with. And, and he was a key component of this study that we've just undertaken. Uh, Merrill Ford. Um, very skilled again with NIM6 Collins and he's been in the industry for, for his whole career um, and, and Trevor. So, sorry, so, so we've, got, we've got a very strong, strong team and we're now looking to, to develop that further. But, uh, you know, it's, it has been tough. It hasn't been easy. I mean, we haven't, as, as you're well aware, I mean, the industry has been in the doldrums and we, we haven't really had uh, sort of the market interest until the last 12 to six months where we've been able to now, let's think about operational readiness, let's think about headcount, let's think about getting the right people uh, um, in place. And, and fortunately, again, South Australia with its operating uranium mines is, it can attract the right talent. There's experienced people there. It, it's very, it's very interesting um, dilemma that CEOs have when markets are quiet, when, when, when it, because there's not a lot of money around, not a lot of interest, not a lot of volatility or trading uh, or momentum just generally in any aspect of it. And you've got to just quietly go about your business. It, it's kind of like um, minimal viable product uh, people use in, in some other applications. But for you guys, you just had to sort of do these baby steps and quietly move things. So you haven't been, not, not necessarily having the money to attract the right people, not necessarily with the money to do the things you want to do because there's no need to have an end product because there's no market for it at an economic, economically viable rate. So th that must have been tricky. 2016 through to, let's say, six months ago, difficult. It has been. 
It has been. It hasn't been easy. And, uh, you know, I take my hat off to colleagues who have also stuck it out. It, it's been, it has been tough. Um, what, uh, you know, the flip side of that, of course, is uh, projects such as ourselves. We've, we've had the time to really, it's almost like campaign style of getting a, a mind back into production. What element do we need to look at? Is it the resource that we need to, to expand? Is it, are there areas of the, of the project, of the processing plant that we need to look at? And you can sort of dissect it, pull it apart and put it back together again. So over the course of the journey, those campaigns, uh, we've, we've tried to dovetail with the market and, and yeah, it's, it's really pleasing to now see that come off. But yeah, I, it, it's been, yeah, it's been, it's been challenging. Um, so, so really, really uh, reassuring to finally feel that like we're we're moving in strides now. But there's still, we've still got some way to go. But it's 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 generally very positive what we're seeing in the marketplace. And yeah, that that, that was yeah. that was my very weak attempt to lead into EFS because I've not heard the phrase very often. Enhanced feasibility study, not a feasibility study. This one's enhanced. It's it's like data. Uh, you know, uh, you, what, 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 why enhanced? What have you been doing? Uh, uh, Supercharging yeah. it. <laughs> Matt, yeah, maybe, I don't know. I, I just thought it suited what we were up to. I mean, we, uh, so no, there's no defined uh, reasoning for that other than it, it seemed apt to use. Uh, we, we did a, we released a feasibility study in January of last year and towards the end of that study recognised that um, we should go purely iron exchange and do away with the existing solvent extraction process. So up until that point, we're going to do stage one, refurbish the existing solvent extraction process, stage two, bring on iron exchange. With this study, we've gone completely iron exchange and, and that was really predicated for two reasons. Firstly, increase the production profile and secondly, decrease, decrease costs. But enhance just, yeah. Seemed the right word at the time. Great marketing. Your marketing team worked over time on that one. So, but, but no, a serious question now, though, is um, we've seen companies like uh, Peninsula struggle technically, certainly in terms of what they've been able to say to the market, in terms of their in enhancing or optimizing their solution, technical solution to extract a you know, better rate. So, and, and I think that'll will be fine in the end, but it, it's been, it's added another sort of six months to their process. When you made that switch, were you trying to solve problems with the other solution, or and you couldn't, or is it genuinely we think we can, we're going to be able to get better economics going this route? I mean, why why the switchery? Why? Well, I think I mean Wayne Healy at Peninsula. I mean he, he's technically very very savvy. I, I I rate Wayne highly, and and I'm sure he will get on top of that leach in chemistry, but. For us, um, one of the main issues or the crux of Uranium One's issues was, was the low tenor of uranium being leached or into the pregnant leach solution. So they averaged only 53 milligrams per litre. So suboptimal tenors such as that have a detrimental flow on effect to, to increasing operating costs. So we, we had to address that problem and we did that through a few Few, few reasons, and this is where Bryn came in, and we had Dr. Dennis Stover, you know, leading ISR expert out of North America, um, really brought in global experts. But we had to look at the well field performance. Where what could we optimize there? And we looked at uh, new techniques in Kazakhstan, the design, the construction of those, and and understanding the geological interpretation of those well fields. So I thought 
that was one area that, that needed to be addressed that probably um, could have could have had more time spent on it previously. But then we look to how does how does the Beverly mine operate? I mean, it's it's been producing for years now. It's very profitable. It's it's producing up to four million pounds per annum. In you know, again, very close proximity to us on a similar ore body, um, very good widths, etc. But very similar. So we looked at what do they use in their leaching chemistry, and and that was lowering the pH levels further to what was, and then increasing the iron tenors in the in the leach chemistry. So. Having tested that in, in, in MET, uh, MET testing in the laboratory with ANSTO, Australian Nuclear Science Technology Organization, we then did a field leach trial for six months in 2017 and, and it worked really, really well. It was a major breakthrough for the honeymoon mine. And, and, um, yeah, that, that's really what, 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 when I knew that we had something really worthwhile and, and it was at that point that we started attracting some big institutional interests who had dedicated uranium sort of funding. It started coming in around that time, and it's been really worthwhile. Well, it's, it's, it's really interesting to me because it, it comes back to the conversation about the lean times, you know, when the market is dead, when money is tight. You don't have the cash to be able to do these experiments, to be able to look at alternatives or just even just um, sense check your own thinking. And it's kind of, there's quite a few instances where the, the, the solution, the end solution comes late in the story because the money is available. So that's what, that's why I'm interested about, you know, the difficulties of the, of the lean periods and then this kind of sort of, um, inflection point where you're kind of, you are able to do the things that you know that you're going to have to do because the money's there. It is interesting. It's an interesting dynamic. I mean, just looking at other other type of mining industries. I mean, iron ore, for example. I mean, some of the major technical breakthroughs happen during the lean times, uh, where you have to be careful with your cash and you have to look at innovative ways to move forward. In this particular example, we we knew we had to get the well filled right. We knew we had to get the leaching chemistry right. And by the way, even though uranium one were averaging fifty three milligram per litre, and that field leach trial that we did averaged 80 to 90 milligram per litre. For our study, we're only using 47 milligram per litre. So we've been very conservative to take into account what could what could happen. But yeah, it, it's, um, it, it, it's fascinating. And I think that, yeah, put your heads together and, and use, there are, there have been industry experts throughout the lean times and draw upon their expertise and, and we work together and, and achieve, a, achieve the outcome. And, and it's really, really, it's been really pleasing and fortuitous. I mean, the other aspect to that field leach trial, of course, was testing new resins and resins that could cope in that high chloride environment in which we operate. That also has been a standout success. I mean, uh, the recoverability of the of the resin and iron exchange was 95% irrespective of the grade of, of, of uranium um, that we were leaching. So, so yeah, technical advancements happened, but, we, but while we were in the doldrums, we also had that, that luxury, I guess, of time. Um, but while time, you also have to show results where you have to keep the, keep the story moving. What milestones are you saying to the market that you're going to achieve? Are you achieving them? Um, how, how are your results? Then, um, you know, there are a lot of, uh, there's a lot of arm waving in any, any industry, but, you know, I'm very proud of, of what we've achieved and, and it's been pulled apart. We've had, you know, this is the second feasibility study we've done in 18 months. I, I don't know what more we could really throw at this and, and, 
we've been completely transparent in that whole process. So very, very pleasing outcome. So talk to us about some of the numbers of, uh, uh, that have come out of this enhanced feasibility study, because to, I know people can read, but let's let's just mention some of the key numbers now, because I'm interested in the the um, FID. That, that, that's what, sure, I, that's okay. what I want to talk about. So just give us the highlight numbers on the EFS. I, I will. I mean, I've, we've received a lot of, of, of good positive publicity since launching the study yesterday. And in, for example, in an interview of a few weeks ago, Rick Rawls said, you know, BOSS was his favoured um, or the least overpriced of the juniors. And, and since that time, you know, we've, we've been able to come out with this study. But what, what we've shown is that your MPV, we've assumed a US uh, 60 US per pound base case study price over the life of mine. We've used a, a, an exchange rate of, of 75 five Australian cents to, 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 a, to, to a US um, dollar. Um, what we've seen is that we can achieve a, an MPV pre-tax of, of 309 US million. That's up 35% since the last study. We've got an IRR of 47%. We've got a, a, a sort of an EBITDA margin of 62%. So that, that's been based on the fact that we've been able to increase that production profile from 2 million to 2.45 million pounds and at the same time decrease the operating costs. So all-in costs have reduced 11% to 32 US per pound. The all-in sustaining costs are down 16% to around 25.6 US per pound. And best of all, cash costs, we've got sub-20. I mean, they're now at around 18.5 US per pound. So, so that's been the real, a really positive outcome. Uh, it has resulted in slightly higher capex. Uh, we had gone into the study, um, as mentioned, having the existing solvent extraction process being part of our, our production profile, but we've now done away with that. So by doing away with that, we've added a few more iron exchange columns and, and now the overall uh, capex requirement is 80 million US. Right, so th those numbers look great. Um, I think we're also going to just let's just talk about um, expansion, uh, ex exploration, expansion yep. um, potential here too, because I think the market's yeah. assuming that you are going to be able to add to the pounds here. Now, you're licensed for, I think it was at, so what are you licensed for in terms of production? We're, we're licensed for up to 3.3 million pounds. Right. What's the likelihood of being able to get extensions in Australia to that once you're up and producing? Oh, there are. There are. There is. I mean, at the time we renewed the export permit, which is nearly 18 months ago, I think, 18 to 24 months ago, um, had a good good talk with the, with the minister um, and he, absolutely, we can expand it. Um, but we need to prove that we've got the resource. We need to prove that we can actually increase that production profile. So that, that's, that's the next step. So really what, what we're up to is really maintaining an exploration program, pro focus and advancing those sort of near mine and exploration targets. At the moment, uh, the, the feasibility study is predicated on 36 million pounds because that's what the mining license sits on top of in the, what we call the honeymoon restart area. But outside of that mining license, there's another 36 million pounds in two, we call it satellite domains. One's called Jason's, one's called Gould's Dam. Uh, we'll look to firm those up or bring the level of confidence into more measured uh, indicated categories of the resource. But also we've got a, a, an expiration target of up to 190 million pounds. So that, that we're looking to really exploit. And at the moment, my, the geological team are actually in the field. They've been in the field for a few months now, finishing the passive seismic surveying we're then going to do active seismic or high reflective. 
we're really trying to gauge as best we can the picture under the under the surface as to where the resource lies and then go in with the drill rigs to, to start drilling. And, and we're planning to do that in the fourth quarter of this year. So our, our focus now is very much on a project perspective, growing the resource and, and increasing the mine life and increasing our production capacity. But I think, Matt, before just moving on, I think while, while we've talked about numbers and, and the feasibility study, uh, overriding all of that in my mind was how do we de-risk the operational uh, side of things? What, how do you make this more operationally viable and, and de take away that operational risk? And, and that was moving purely to iron exchange. And I mean, that, that to me was the overriding reason for, for, for doing this. Um, what we've had the benefits, we've, sure, we've decreased costs, we've increased production profile, but we've removed a lot of the operating risks. I mean, when we get up and running, you wanna make life as easy as you can for yourself. And, and this was deemed to be the best way. So we've, we've, we've been able to prove that. No, I understand. I, yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, the numbers are super, but you needed to technically de-risk this thing, or at least, you know, use the technology solution to actually enhance the economics. So I think, I think you've done that. Certainly when we were looking at you, that's, that's what we were encouraged um, by. Um, just, in, just in terms of the, um, the allocation of resources, right? You, you've got a decent sized project now. You've shown that you can go and easily raise money to buy pounds because that people just viewed that as an arbitrage plate, right? You know, I know you say there's more to it than that, but you know, but I think market looking in and go, well, that's just an arbitrage plate. That is smart. I'll, I'll invest in that. Your capex is quite small compared to many. So it's not, a, I don't imagine that's going to be an onerous task to go and raise the capex there. Do you go and raise a little bit more to accelerate the exploration component, the increasing the resource component? Uh, yeah, good question. I mean, we've got, we, we do have, I mean, at the moment we've got 20 million uh, Australian dollars in net cash and that, that excludes our 100% backed, env environmentally backed bond uh, with, with the state government. But that is enough to to continue on with our exploration profile for the moment. So no, we don't we don't need more uh, monetary resources really to to push that forward. We've got a good plan, and certainly we've got enough cash for the foreseeable future. But but it is it's yeah it's it's really how how aggressive do you want to be at drilling, and that's one that we need to sort of I guess dovetail a bit with the market. I found that. Um, Let's say since since we acquired the project, we've grown that jork resource from 17 million pounds to 72 million pounds. So we know the resource is out there, um, but but drilling is not a cheap exercise. So hence the geophysical work that we've done, and now we take the rigs in. But in the past, when I've, I've put out mineral resource statement upgrades, um, we've announced drill results. And it does, it, it, it excites the market and you get this instant gratification of great, they've achieved, um, but then it dives back down again. So it's a, it's a tough one. I, I think we've got to be sort of mind fit, mindful and, and realise that we are at near, you know, we're a restart project. We're very close to getting into production. Um, there's clearly an expiration upside and that we want to capitalise on. Let's let's do it in a in sort of dovetailing with with the market increasing in, in its in its commodity price. Okay, so you it sounds like you're you're happy with your lot here. We've had a bunch of questions sent in. You know, do you think there's going to be a lot of M and A in in the, in the junior space? Yeah. Um, yeah. Are you 
are you interested in that? Have people approached you? Just generally, what, what's your sense, mood about what's happening out there, re-M&A? Yeah, we're, we're, we're very interested. I mean, uh, first I wanted to get my, my sort of ducks in a row and, and make sure that we've got an asset that as Honeymoon that we've de-risked and ready to go. So that, that was our priority as a, as a company. But no, certainly we've been dedicating, Bryn and I, perhaps five to 10% of our time looking at other projects. Uh, we've taken a deep dive on a few. Um, a few look really interesting, but uh, they're, they're, I don't know. I guess um, the the commodities have run. The equity price, sorry, the equity prices have run. Um, some the valuations have got a bit skewed in our view. Uh, so we've had to sort of take a breath and think. Okay, um, is that value for money? Is it value accredited for shareholders if we do this? Uh, but, but through that process, what it has allowed us to do is, is develop a, a discipline. What projects are we looking to do M&A with? Um, we would look more towards an advanced project, would look more towards a sort of tier one jurisdiction. Um, but certainly we, we're very much open to the idea of, of M&A. Um, have other groups approached us? Yes, they have. Uh, really sort of friendly conversations, just sort of testing the market, seeing what each other's doing. Um, and, and how open-minded we are. I personally, I think we're undervalued. Um, so, so the timing's not right for us. But, but yeah, like all things, I mean, ultimately, it's a, it's a public company, and, and we need to do what's best for our shareholders. There's there's no ego in the room. I mean, ultimately, um, you you have to deliver for shareholders. So that's the primary objective. Okay, some companies' valuations are a bit skewed. Your words, XFD. You've done a bit of M&A in your time, I suspect. What, give some investing tips here. What are the three things that you look at in a company when you when you go, uh, I need to work out if that's uh, priced fairly? What should we be looking at? Uh, what you should be looking at. I mean, it's difficult not, not being able to do um, in-depth due diligence. I mean, you really need to be able to have that ability to look behind the scenes and, and understand the what are the cost drivers behind those numbers? What what, what can you do to make the, the operation more efficient? So I think really it's, it's confidence over the resource. What grade is the resource? How, how large is the resource? And, and what mining technique would be applied to really to, to do that? Um, we, in a, and we look, at, we look at the permitting aspect. We look at the, the, the jurisdiction. Is it supportive of the actual um, uranium mining? Um, how, how supportive will it be going forward? And, and what hurdles could you face? They're, they're probably the, I mean, it's very simply put, but mining processing and, and the actual geolo- the jurisdiction that they're operating in. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting. I, th- I, th- I think some are undervalued, a lot are overvalued. It, it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a toughie. It's, it's hard. I mean, we, I was advised at the time and uh, um, I, I, um, we did our best. Uh, we, we looked at projects um, when, when before the, the sort of spot price or commodity price started to move because at that point, the market had been in the doldrums for a long period of time. And, and you, you're going back to that classical financial sort of theory, you would, you would have thought that it's a bit of an equal playing field um, and, and um, analysts had, and shareholders had taken those factors into account. So, so it was equal playing field. We could assess each other at that equal price. But let's face it, I mean, the past six months, uh, some Projects, companies have been very effective at marketing and, and um, some haven't. And 
uh, we'll all get there in the end, but I think the valuations ha are, are, are moving around a bit. So it's a bit more challenging and, and needs to be taken into account. But our, our way forward, um, you know, we, we really need to look at M&A and at the same time, we need to look at increasing our, our actual um, resource base. Okay, Duncan, and just let's let's come back to this FID. Okay, now you've got your EFS. You are closer to putting yourself in a position where you can actually start um, putting some meaningful numbers um, together around the around the capex. So you're going to be having conversations um, with groups um, about financing that. So what's the what's the timeline look like? I mean, I guess it's going to be market market dependent in terms of price recovery, etc. But how quickly can you move? Uh, we can move quickly. I mean, within 12 months we can be producing. But yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a it's an interesting one. And and I'm working. We're working. Or Sashi and I are working very closely together and and looking at how what is the right price to come into the market um, and when will that be? Um, you know, we what we want to do is create a, a profitable and sustainable mine. And our strategy largely will be influenced by discussions with lenders in terms of an ongoing and clear understanding of, of what's what price is needed to to get the best terms for raising the capital requirement. Um, you know, contract sizes can vary. At a minimum, they can be £100,000 a year and upwards, but we intend to keep our focus on really building a, a, a sort of a sustainable mine that, that protects you against the downside, market-related contracts that can also give you exposure to the upside as, as the price begins to move. And as mentioned, layer in our, our, our sort of contracts into that rising market. So once we see spot price moving and staying above, you know, the mid high 30s, we'll be taking it very seriously. And, and the contracts that we'd be looking to enter into they, by layering, you, you've got different pricing mechanisms, you've got different volumes, you've got different durations. So you sort of move with the market. But that, that, that to me is a, is a bit of a science into itself. And um, yeah, really fortunate to be working with Sashi in that regard and, and taking that deep dive. We've been spending a lot of time, time on that. And um, you know, the flip side of that, of course, is trying to gauge when will utilities start entering the term market and what are existing producers going to do? And, you know, it's, it's, it's actually quite complex, but again, it goes back to um, having the mine ready to go and we're good to go. It just takes away that element. So it's, it's quite exciting now to be dealing with another facet of, of, of the project and, and taking it forward. So just so I understand, um, I, I understand what happens from the moment you, you, you do, you know, the FID, um, is made, but pre, pre, prior to that, you're showing. So I, well, I'm sensing some degree of confidence about being able to go to the market and raise the capital. You know where you're going to go. You know who's going to come in, I, and I guess what you don't know is what the cost of that's going to be. So, can you talk to us about the, the pre pre FID component? So, what I found, I mean, who's a good example? What I found there was uh, we we. We had a time frame. We wanted to get the mine into production, commission the mine, get it into production within a set time frame. Call it three years, and 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 in actual fact, it took four years. But what happened during that process is we we you have your owners team and you start building out your executive team, more on the operational side. Is the finance chap? My role was sitting in you know the finance, the the accounting policies, procedures, systems, etc. But it was also looking at raising the debt component. 
And we, we as part of the team, we, we secured a syndicated agreement of 1.642 billion US and then a further 400 million uh, from one of the local Southern African banks. But that took time and it's dedicated due diligence. And so meanwhile, the exec, the owners team were kicking on with their project assessment and getting their various um, sort of teams and blueprints in order ready for the finance to come in and allow them the opportunity to spend the money and build the mine. But there was a delay and that delay is expensive because those, 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 that owner's team is not, are not being fully utilised. So, so the approach taken this time round was, okay, we know we're not there yet. We haven't signed off-take agreements, but let's start that process now. So we've, we've, we've appointed an independent um, debt financier, uh, a debt advisor, sorry, to work alongside with. And their role is has been testing the market and seeing what financiers are out there that are willing to invest in, in uranium production, that are willing to invest in a project like Honeymoon. And, and we've, we've found about a dozen um, worldwide that are very keen, um, that have had a good look at us. And the next stage of that, that sort of due diligence process that they undertake is to then have a proper assessment of our financial model, uh, which we'll be sharing with them of the financial model that is of the of the enhanced feasibility study that we'll now share with them to allow them to continue on with their their due diligence. So the whole uh, the whole purpose is such that when we land at land our initial offtake agreements, um, the 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 preferred financiers already are already advanced with their due diligence, such that you've you've shortened that time frame with which they can sort of start lending new funds to get going. So so that that's that's the sort of basis that we've taken this time around. Okay, so can you put a, a time on it? I mean, well, first of all, let me say, owner's team is not a fr another phrase I haven't heard before. So you described who's in it, but is that a normal thing in Australia? Uh, I think globally, well, I don't know. I mean, that's what I was used to, certainly in Africa. Owner's team is really your, oh, sorry, it's probably, okay, to put it into context, sorry. Um, owner's team is a, is a term used uh, when sort of commissioning a mine. Many, many uh, companies such as ourselves are not experts them, at, at, at employing the engineers to build the mine. So you do what's called an EPCM type contract where, where you assign, say, for example, our study manager in the studies was GR Engineering. Um, they, they come in and they do the independent assistance of building the actual mine. What we do as the owners team is we're the operators. We're there to say, guys, did you build that part of the plant, the precip circuit, the drying room? Is it up to standard? Is it working towards the metrics of what we need to actually have optimal production? So, uh, sorry, owners team, operators team, I guess is probably a better way of putting it, sorry. No, 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 it's just I, I like this. You want to get the vocabulary right. So, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, you'll hear more of it as these mines come into, into production. I, I suspect, <laughs> I suspect. So, um, okay, so th that, that, that's the owner's team. Um, I didn't get a sort of time frame there. I, I, I got the process, but again, yeah. you're going to sit back and sort of wait for the market. I, I, I agree, I, I suspect to a large degree, but have you? Got an idea in your head of what you're aiming at? What are you, what are you seeing in the marketplace? Uh, Matt, it is difficult. I actually think prices will start picking up at, at the um, sort of, you know, third quarter going into, of this year going into next year. Um, that's, that's when, and I'm talking about moving to the mid high 30s. That's, that's sort of what we, what we have in mind. But 
Um, that and that's it, it. It is difficult, but what what we know and what I tried to explain earlier is that um, the price when the prices move and you move that that sort of pricing from you know to that inflection point, it can happen really suddenly and violently. And and if I you know going back to when I was involved back in 2007-8, I mean, the, the spot price was running at sort of dollars a week. I mean, it really started moving quickly. And um, so, so when it happens, it happens quickly and you need to be prepared. So we've done, we're doing the best we can to be prepared, but actually gauging the, the, the point that that will happen is difficult. And um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I sort of think, why, why are existing, why, why isn't the price moving now? I mean, we've looked at it from a, from a fuel bar perspective in this conversation, we've looked at it from my perspective, but why aren't existing producers holding out for those higher prices? Why are they locking in prices at this level? And I mean, our understanding is that there is a level of, of sort of, 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 of producer discipline at the moment, but it's only the term, con, the term sorry, it's only the term indicator that's, that's actually reflecting um, sort of fixed and base price, base priced um, contracts. We're not actually seeing the market-related pricing mechanism. So it's difficult sitting outside uh, what the machinations that's going on of, of the existing producers and, and what they're what they're seeking to achieve. But what we're hearing is that um, producers are offering more market-related pricing mechanisms and, and hybrids that include sort of market components and. While that doesn't impact the sort of term indicator, it's a positive as it is sort of allowing future deliveries to capture the upside of market movements. And, it, and it's also reflecting producer optimism about the future. You know, they're not fixing contracts, they're going market related. And that's been a really, a really um, sort of positive development within the industry. Um, I wish I knew basically when that time will be. <laughs> I think it's coming soon, and I, I, you know, I'm reassured that we're we're ready, and I'm reassured that um, we're now focused a bit more on operational readiness and and taking that next step. And yeah, we've I've been waiting for this period for a long for a long time. So yeah. brilliant, brilliant. And just one final question, just on the OTC, are you seeing a lot more um, trading um, there? Are you seeing a lot more interest from journalists in the US, North America? On, well, we, we're there by default. We, I think we're there as a pink slip. I think we're the oh. lowest categories. We're now making. No, there's grey. There's also grey. <laughs> there's grey. Well, we're moving. <laughs> well, you'll be pleased to know I've been, I'm engaged now and we are moving. We've, had, we've actually had overwhelming. Um, we've been pressured actually to now lift it. And so we're doing it. And I think on average, we're. I think the average volume now we're trading is around 1.4 million, million shares per, per year. Uh, sorry, per day, daily. Um, it's controlled by market makers, so it's sort of you're probably quite familiar with that type of process. in In the UK, we don't really have it in Australia, but yeah, I am seeing more more interest in in generalist funds. Um, I hope it continues, and I'm sure it will. I think that the exposure, for example, the UPC um, Sprott transaction on the New York Stock Exchange will also help help do that. Um, but yeah, the market's looking positive and we're receiving a lot more sort of calls um, far and wide from new brokers to the scene. And again, it's sort of retelling the, the or helping them understand the framework and and, and understanding the sort of pricing and, and what they can expect to see. But it has been challenging. It's an opaque market and it's really the specialist funds have, some of them have really saw the opportunity a few years ago and they've done very well today. I mean, They've had some good gains, particularly of the last six months. 
Yeah, I mean, you've, you've got a few nice ones in there. You've got Paradise, Satcham Cove, and Tribeca, you know, fir- firmly ensconced in, in, in you. Um, and they, I think they continue to buy as well at opportune moments. So, yeah, look, um, look, Duncan, I've taken up enough of your time today. Appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. We've been trying to make this happen for a while, and I'm glad glad we got there. Um, I know a lot of people are excited about your story. You know, we are too operationally ready, um, like a Boy Scout, aren't you? Be prepared. Uh, Matthew, thank you. And thanks so much for your patience having me on the show. And, and I'm really uh, I'm really grateful for the opportunity. And, and yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to CruxCast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.